Amazing. We're going to be in Colossians chapter 1. If you want to turn there, find it in your app, but we have it on the screen as well. Colossians 1, starting in verse 24. Now I rejoice in what I am suffering for you, and I fill up in my flesh what is still lacking in regards to Christ's affliction, for the sake of his body, which is the church. I have become its servant by the commission God gave me to present to you the word of God in its fullness, the mystery that has been kept hidden for ages and generations, but is now disclosed to the Lord's people. To them God has chosen to make known among the Gentiles the glorious riches in this, of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. He is the one we proclaim, admonishing and teaching everyone with all wisdom, so that we may present everyone fully mature in Christ. To this end, I strenuously contend with all the energy Christ so powerfully works in me. I want you to know how hard I am contending for you and for those at Laodicea, for all who have not met me personally. My goal is that they may be encouraged in heart and united in love so that they may have the full riches of complete understanding in order that they may know the mystery of God, namely Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures and wisdom and knowledge. I tell you this so that no one may deceive you by fine-sounding arguments. For though I am absent from you in the body, I am present with you in the spirit and delight to see how disciplined you are and how firm your faith in Christ is. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Ariel. Good morning, everyone. Yeah, if you're new, welcome to Park Hill. My name is Evan Wickham. And yeah, thanks again, Ariel, for reading the, the text. We're going to be in Colossians. Uh, my wife Sandy and I have the joy of leading this church. So uh, if we haven't met you, we'd love to meet you. Um, and, and yeah, we're, we are in Colossians. So, so make sure your Bible's open to Colossians 1. This book, Colossians, is all about maturity, Christian maturity. And this is why Paul writes this letter. So this little church would know what it means to become like Jesus. Like David just said, that's our mission, part of our mission at this church, is to be with Jesus, to become like him so that we do what he does. That's what Paul wants for, for Colossae and, and for us. And so today, Paul gets us there by telling some of his own story. And the people he's writing to, they don't know Paul personally like you. We obviously don't know Paul. He's not alive in our, in our day. Um, but they do know, they've never met him, but they do know one thing about him. He's in jail. He's in prison. And back then, you don't go to prison with a determinate sentence like you do today. You know, like the judge gives you a sentence, one year, five years. They didn't do that back then. Prison was basically a hopeless holding tank for something worse, like, you know, execution or exile or maybe like a dirt floor of a gladiator arena. You never know what you're going to get after you're in prison. And so the Colossians are naturally worried about Paul. He's suffering. And so right now at this part of the letter, Paul wants to give them a framework for processing his suffering. That's what he's doing here. He's like, yes, I'm in prison. Yes, it's awful, but I, I, it, it hurts me. But I want you to realize these sufferings have a meaning beyond what you might think. There's a bigger framework for understanding pain. This is what Paul's doing. And, and here's what I want to say to Park Hill Church. You guys, if you're visiting uh, and, and you're here, this is what I want you to understand. When we get Paul's framework, we get everything. We get everything that we're supposed to get about our lives, 
okay? What he's going to say here is all, it's cosmic. It's universe-wide. And it, it includes us. So I just, I just said that Colossians is about maturity, right? And that's our church mission statement. So become like Jesus. Sounds good, right? Like who's like, sounds good. Jesus is good. <laughs> He's awesome. People like Jesus. And, and that's what, you know, we could say, I want to be like Jesus. He's a great guy. And even if you're not a Christian, you're like, he's probably a great guy. And, but in, today, in today's text, Paul helps us double check our desires. Like, do you really want, do you really want that? He sort of holds up a mirror and says, is Christ really what you most want? Let's, let's DTR. Let's define the relationship with Jesus. That's what Paul's doing. Um, and, and he does, he, 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 it's really intimate. It's really intimate what he does here. He digs into our business here. He gets all up in our private life. Because here's, here's the point I want to say at the beginning. You and I are becoming what we desire. Right now, you're becoming what you want. So the question is, how, how, do, you, how do we actually know what we really want? If I were to ask you right now after service, you come to the Park Hill 10, you go to, hopefully you can go to the Park Hill 10 up here and talk to Jake and ask questions about the church if you're new. But if Jake was like, what do you want? Welcome to Park Hill, what do you most want? How would you, how would you respond to Jake? How would you even find out what it is you want? What do you do to find out what you want in life? In other words, what are the things that orient you? Or as the Bible would ask, what are the things you worship? Same question. What are your ultimate desires, the things you really want? And, and what we find here is probably more than anything, the thing that helps you know what you most want is to name the things that disappoint you. Because when you name your disappointments, you're naming your pain, your suffering. And that suffering is always connected to what you're aimed at, what you wanted that you didn't get. You suffer because you didn't get what you wanted. Right? So... A disappointment and a desire are intimately connected. They can't exist without each other. Every disappointment is a desire that's not fulfilled. Right? Disappointment is some desire that's wounded. You had a desire that got harmed or scarred because it didn't get what it wanted. So I think a lot of Christians are disappointed. Not just disappointed, but suffering joylessly. Because ultimately we've lost touch with the goal of this whole thing. What's the goal of the Christian life? And this is where Paul's genius, <laughs> Paul's genius here, he helps us really see what's really inside of us. He, he helps us see, you know, if, if we're disappointed because, you know, we're not getting everything we want, or maybe our marriage isn't happy, our marriage isn't as happy as we wanted, or we're not making as much money as we want, or maybe we're sick and not as healthy as we want, or like Paul, we're maybe in Roman prison, not where we want to be. We don't want to be in a Roman prison. And if we're disappointed and joyless, then that's because our desire is hitched to the wrong thing, wherever we are. Which is why it's important to know the point of life, the goal of the Christian life. And Jesus defines the goal. According to Jesus, the goal of the Christian life is this phrase he calls eternal life. And immediately, when you think of eternal life, what do you think of? We, we sometimes get it wrong when we're like, you know, uh, forever and ever doing what we really wanted in life. <laughs> like we get everything we want forever, all the pleasures that we thought we wanted in life. But then we're back in the old cycle of just our, desire, our desires, right? So that, that doesn't work. 
And by the way, that's not remotely what eternal life is in the Bible. It's not just like a big, big house where you play football forever, you know, like that Christian song from the 90s. I just want to surf or whatever, whatever it is you want. That's not the eternal life Jesus was talking about. Those are great things, but that's different. Jesus defines eternal life in John 17. You know the verse, John 17, 3. He says, this is eternal life, to know him and the one who sent him, Jesus. It's knowing. That's the goal of the Christian life. It's not about stuff or money or position or power or your reputation. It's about a relationship with the divine person, the Father, Son, and Spirit. That's eternal life, relationship with the divine person, the living God. Eternal life is to be face-to-face with God. And we know this from the story of Scripture. If you're familiar with the Bible, what's the first story in the Bible? What's the setting? It's this garden called what? Eden. Eden. You know the Hebrew word Eden? It means delight. It's what you desire. So you see humans face-to-face with God in the garden of delight. And when they rebel against God, they're banished from the garden. And you know the Hebrew word banished? It's the same Hebrew word that pops up in the Bible that's translated divorced. So the idea is human beings leave the garden of delight and it is a divorce. It's a breakdown of intimacy that humans once had with God. So it's no coincidence that the end of the Bible is, you know what it is? It's the new heaven and new earth described as a marriage. Heaven and earth finally come together like a bride and a groom again. So the Bible story really goes from marriage to divorce to remarriage. That's the storyline of the whole Bible. That is eternal life. Eternal life is a restoration of our intimacy with God that's made possible through the death, life, and resurrection of Jesus. That's eternal life. And so right now, what's your goal as people of eternal life? Do you have eternal life now? In Christ, as a Christian, absolutely you do. Which means your goal, above everything else, is now learning how to enjoy God and be enjoyed by this God. It's learning how to want God above all the other things you can want, just as you are wanted by this God. This is eternal life. So question, just to lead us off, is God what you want? Because the thing you ultimately want is the thing you'll become. Paul knows this, and so he knows the best way to find out what's really inside is to pay attention to how you suffer. Because that's what comes out. So uh, Paul starts with himself. Here's his story. Look at verse 24. He says, now I rejoice in what I'm suffering for you. Man, Paul. I rejoice in what I'm suffering for you. And he says, I fill up in my flesh what's still lacking in regards to Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, which is the church. Let's keep that verse on the screen for a bit because it's intense. This is going to kind of govern our day, this verse. Paul is rejoicing in what he suffers? My first question, why? And like, how can I have what Paul's having? I'll take what he's having. Because that sounds great to be joyful in all the pain, right? Right? Rejoice in my pain. Like, who's with me? Why? Tell me. Show me me the secret. So first thing I want to acknowledge right now in this room, only God knows all the different stories of pain that are in these chairs right now. 
You look around and just see faces that you know and some, many you don't know. And only God knows everything about what is troubling all of us. Um, not just direct persecution for following Jesus, but also the unavoidable pain that comes with being human in this beautiful broken world with betrayal and misunderstanding and sickness, grief, loss, anxiety, everything. You guys, being human is painful business. And so I want to acknowledge that this room is full of pain. And the second thing I want to acknowledge, pain is pain. The last thing we want to do is compare, right? That just diminishes someone. Pain is pain. So, So that said... We don't know the pain in the room, and we don't compare the pain in the room. It's all here. We're all here together. So we bring this back to the question, what is the framework for joy in this suffering? Please tell us, Paul. We're like all ears. And Paul is going to tell us. And it turns out it has to do with the second part of that verse on the screen. That second line, Paul views his own suffering as filling up what's lacking in Christ's suffering. What does that mean? Like, why does Paul say his suffering is filling the gaps in Jesus's? What do you mean gaps? Jesus has gaps in his suffering? Didn't Jesus suffer once and for all on a cross for our sins? Answer, yes, he did. (laughs) He did. Absolutely. Well, then why does Paul say that Paul's suffering is somehow joining and completing what was lacking in Jesus' suffering? Why does Paul say that? The answer is because Paul's paying attention to Jesus, Jesus' teachings. In Mark 8, Jesus tells his disciples that Jesus' own sufferings would be part of the deal for not just himself, but for those who would follow him. Look how Jesus says it. He says uh, in Mark 8, we have the next slide. He then began to teach them that the Son of Man, that's himself, must suffer many things. Jesus spoke plainly about this. Quote from Jesus, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. This is the framework Paul's working with. It comes straight from Jesus. So you guys... According to Jesus, following Jesus is hard. If your idea of following Jesus is easy, then chances are you have the wrong idea of following Jesus, or you have the wrong Jesus. Like we we often in our culture today have this picture of Jesus like, oh, he just accepts everybody. He's just the kindest person I can personally imagine in my brain. That's the wrong Jesus. He is the kindest person you can imagine. Absolutely, because the fruit of the Spirit includes kindness. But that's not all Jesus is. He's not just the best person you can imagine. Uh, He says, whoever wants to follow me, Jesus says they must step into their death machine. That's what the cross was. An execution device. Step into your electric chair, deny your own authentic self, and follow me. Renounce your life for me. You guys, this is where the gospel gets up in our business as postmodern 21st century Westerners, doesn't it? It confronts our culture. Today, in our culture, telling someone that their authentic desires are wrong is seen as unjust or even harmful to them. 
Like it's harmful to tell someone that their desires are wrong. How dare you? That's the culture we're in. That's how things are seen. And don't get me wrong, there are certainly unloving ways of telling someone the truth about them. There's very unloving ways to do that. But that's not Jesus. Here's the invitation from Jesus. It's to die to your temporary... Yeah, next slide. You got it. Yeah. The invitation from King Jesus is to die to your temporary authentic self to find true joy and true life that comes only by receiving your eternal self from Jesus. You guys, this is a central idea in the New Testament. And it's the opposite of the idea we get naturally from growing up in America in, the, in 2020, whatever it is, whenever you're, whenever you're born. And uh, it's this idea that, okay, first of all, we get, we get this first part. Jesus won our salvation once and for all on the cross. He died for our sins. A lot of Christians get that. Awesome. The part we don't get is that that same salvation that gets worked out into the world, that same salvation that Jesus gave us through his suffering, that same way of suffering gets worked out into the world, not through Christians using weapons of the world to cause suffering and to kill each other and send in tanks to blast the bad guys, but through the same ministry of suffering love that Jesus saved us by. This is what Paul means this is how I fill in the gaps in Christ's suffering. We, through suffering well, are actually filling up what was lacking in Jesus' sufferings on the cross. Deep intimacy with our suffering Savior whenever we suffer well in this life, which then immediately gives us grounds for joy. So do you see how this works? As Christians, we don't die for the sins of the world. That's Jesus' job. He already did it. But now the way the gospel works out in the world is through the poor in spirit. You have slide six. Next slide here. The way the gospel works into the world is through the poor in spirit, the meek, the brokenhearted, the wounded, the vulnerable, the mourners, the people hungering for justice. You guys, this list comes from Jesus too. It's called the Beatitudes where he says, blessed are these people. Or in Hebrew, oh, how happy are the mourners. Oh, how happy are the wounded. Jesus, I don't understand you is what I want to say to that. He's like, oh, wait, you, you, you wait until you experience me in your life. The kingdom of God expands through people who suffer with Christ. This is how the gospel goes to work in the world. This is how followers of Jesus are completing the king's suffering. Jesus is suffering for the sake of the church. You guys, this is how God is making everything new. And can I just speak plainly about our American context? This is why, right here, is why the Christian mission will never include taking America back for God by political force. Like, I don't want to make America anything again. I want the new country God promises. So we do not complete Christ's work in the world by imposing Christianity on the world. That's not how we do it. For Jesus, Paul, the New Testament writers, we complete Christ's work in the world as his nonviolent, forgiveness-saturated, Holy Spirit-empowered community that suffers with love. As Jesus says, whoever wants to follow me, let him take up that cross and follow me. And so here in Colossians, this is Paul's 
source. It's Jesus' framework for suffering. Which is why he's like, hey, Colossians, it's hard to follow Jesus. This prison is awful. Which is why I'm rejoicing. <laughs> because my suffering is proof that the gospel's working. If I, if I was hurting my Roman enemies, then that would mean the opposite. The gospel is not at work. But my enemies are hurting me, which means my enemies are alive and witnessing Christ's forgiveness through me. And then it means, it means you Colossians, you're getting this letter all about my suffering. You're being built up, so I rejoice. So this is how Paul is thinking about his own very real pain. It, it is an intimate partnership with the pain of Christ himself. It's not pain for pain's sake. It's not no pain, no gain. Pain is life. It is pain is the place of partnership with the, with the living Christ. And when we view it this way, the kingdom is unleashed, however the pain comes. Primarily when the pain comes from persecution for the gospel, for sure. But then every other kind of pain Seemingly purposeless pain. I know, I know for a fact that many of you in this church have experienced seemingly meaningless pain. Like why God type pain. Grief and loss that makes no sense at all and it actually makes you envious at people who haven't experienced the same kinds of losses. I know this personally. And, and it's in that pain that Paul is saying that pain contains the place of partnership with Christ. Where, where, where you, see, you, see your, you see your place in that pain as, as completing the work of Christ by dispensing forgiveness and kindness and love and rejoicing and generosity and gratitude for others when it doesn't make sense why you'd be grateful. You're actually partnering with Christ on his cross, unleashing kingdom power in the world, the stuff eternity's made of. So how are you guys doing right now? So I told you that following Jesus is hard. We get that. Happy Super Bowl Sunday or whatever. So in some ways, in some ways, this is, speaking of Super Bowl, this news is especially hard for, like, Americans, Right? Citizens of the relatively wealthiest, most comfortable, Christianized nation in the history of the world. So contrary to popular belief, following Jesus is not your best life now. It's certainly, it's certainly the best life forever, eternally. But until Christ returns, we are invited to see our suffering as partnership with Christ. Your deepest flourishing is directly tied to your willingness to surrender your authentic self at the cross of Jesus. So the question I want to have us wrestle with, like sit with, is are there any pieces of your life you're unwilling to surrender to this king? Like whatever it is, it's usually around the big three, right? The big three idols of our day, sex, money, power. Are you willing to give your desires to King Jesus today? Or are there parts of your life you'd rather like monitor by yourself? Listen to the rest of Christ's words in Mark 8. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world, yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his Father's glory with the holy angels. 
So according to Jesus, it's hard to follow Jesus, but it's also so worth it. Lose your life, gain the kingdom. Give Jesus all your moments, gain eternal life. This is why Paul says, now I rejoice at what I'm suffering for you. Because his suffering is really revealing the true desires of his heart, which is deep intimacy with the triune God. Not just for himself, but everyone who sees him suffer well. It's all about relationship, you guys, this whole thing. It started with Father, Son, and Spirit, all three together, one God forever, as I like to tell my kids. I haven't said that in a while. But uh, all three together, one God forever, that relationship between the triune Godhead is what everything is about. The prime reality behind everything. You can physics all your life, science will keep changing. Behind all of reality is a triune relationship of love that all of humanity is invited into. Look how he says this in the next few verses. Paul says, I've become the church's servant by the commission God gave me to present, you to, the wor- to present to you the word of God in its fullness. The word of God, you guys. And here's what the word of God brings. Look at verse 26. The mystery that's been kept hidden from ages and generations, but is now disclosed to the Lord's people. To them God has chosen to make known among the Gentiles the glorious riches of this mystery. What is this great mystery that the word of God is coming to you, trying to reveal to you? What is this mystery that now the whole world can see through faith in Christ? Christ in you, the hope of glory. That's the mystery revealed. Christ, synonym for king, the king living in you. But what does that mean? Because right again, we have to peel back layers. If you're like me, you got to peel back layers of like church culture. Uh, because I, you know, growing up in evangelicalism, I would hear the phrase, tell me if you've heard it, and ask Jesus into your heart. Have you heard that phrase? Ask Jesus into your heart. It's a, it's a fine phrase. It's the main way I heard, here's how to become a Christian. You pray a prayer that you, you say you're a sinner and God forgives you, which is all true, 100%. And the goal is then Jesus comes into your heart and becomes your personal, private, like personal Lord and Savior. And so, fine metaphors, the only problem is they're not in the Bible. So here's where this idea becomes a problem. Here's where it becomes a problem. Asking Christ into your heart can, can become a lens where you read verses like this. Massive ideas like the king of new creation living in you hope of glory and then if you're reading asking Jesus in your heart into this you can kind of be like oh this is just Jesus living in my heart uh, to bring me hope until I go to heaven when I die which is a huge miss (laughs) yes God will take care of us after we die yes we'll be in Christ's presence for sure but that's not the goal of this whole thing you guys that's not the goal one day God will remake all creation, and raise us to new bodily life in the resurrection. That is our goal. And and that is the hope of glory Paul's talking about here. This is a main theme all through the Old and Old, Old, Old Testament especially. The whole hope of the Jews before Jesus is this idea that Yahweh would finally come to end injustice, stop evil, heal the world, set up his kingdom, and all the biblical authors describe it like this in Psalm 72 and Isaiah 11, praise to his glorious name forever. May the whole earth be filled 
with his glory. Amen and amen. You guys, that's not a metaphor for some heavenly floaty baby angel bliss afterlife. That is, a, that is not the metaphor. The baby thing might be a metaphor for the real thing. This is the real thing. Our future consists of a, a remade earth where our physical bodies rise by the power of the Spirit into eternal embodied family life together. This is the hope. It's concrete. It's not abstract. It's not a metaphor. And, 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 so, and so it's a specific goal that we have. This is the goal of our faith. And when we lose sight of the richness and concreteness of resurrection, no wonder we're hopeless in suffering in our bodies. When we lose sight of the goal, no wonder we're hopeless when we suffer. So slide 12 here. Uh, our hope of glory is the concrete future reality of God's presence coming fully into creation once and for all to rid the world of all injustice and bring final healing to his family forever. That is the hope of glory. Creation flooded with God's presence and remade. Which means, you guys, here in Colossians, you know what, you know what this means? It means Paul's saying, when you, as a human being, receive the word of God and trust in King Jesus with your whole life, when that happens, that future reality, that concrete reality where God's presence floods creation, that becomes concrete in you now. Hope of glory now in you. This is the mystery. God's presence floods you now. The king of new creation, the king of the future remade world now living in you ahead of time. The hope of glory pulsating with life in you in San Diego now as an advanced sign of coming attractions. Christ in you, the hope of glory. So the question becomes, is this king fully welcomed here in this church? As King Jesus is welcomed here in every way, we see the foretaste of the future. Is he welcome here, though? Is he welcome in you? Is he welcome in your community, in your meals and community prayer times? In the words of my friend John Tyson, pastor in New York City, God comes where he's wanted. Is Jesus wanted here? Is Jesus wanted in your personal life? Is he wanted in your spending habits? in who you pursue romantically? Is Jesus wanted in what you do with your body? Is he wanted in all your relationships? Is his authority wanted in your job, your vocation, your political engagement, how you entertain yourself, how you choose to eat, drink, rhythms of fasting, worship, prayer, scripture reading? Is Christ welcome to actively form you into Christ-like maturity or did you just ask Jesus in your heart once upon a time, that's it? I wonder if the Holy Spirit today is inviting you to think differently about what it means to follow Jesus. Especially considering how Paul began, like, now I rejoice in my suffering because of the weight of eternal glory that's more real to me than this table that's in front of me. So question, just another one to sit with. Could it be possible that many of us have been viewing Christianity as a way to baptize our own desires instead of crucify them?
What if crucifying your authentic self is the only path to the life you truly long for? What would that require of you today? What would the sign of that fresh trust be? We're going to have a time for prayer during the first song after the teaching where you don't have to say a thing. We just invite you to get up, walk forward, and receive prayer. Just receive prayer. And let the people who are up here pray for you and pray the love of God over you and invite the Holy Spirit to shine light over you and reveal God's love for you. Romans 5 says the Holy Spirit pours out the Father's love into our hearts. Let him do that today. Let the Spirit pour out the Father's love into your hearts. What if that's the same thing as saying, I will crucify my authentic desires, quote unquote, in order to discover the way, the truth, and the life. I will let the Father pour his love out into my life. I will give him full reign in my life. This is the invitation. Welcome the King. Jesus comes where he's wanted, and he brings with him life that's truly life. Now imagine this is difficult to hear. This is like, wow. If you're like new, you've never been to church for a while, maybe you're checking out church, you're like, holy smoke, what am I even at? This is wild. Um, I get it. I'm with you. Jesus is gnarly. He's not just someone you make up in your head as your best friend or whatever. He's real. He's like a person. So maybe, maybe you're hearing this, submitting my private life and all that, and you're like, this, I don't even know how to trust like that. It feels weird and authoritarian. How do I know this isn't just some like hard sell from a pastor or something? Um, if that's at all how you feel, I have, a, I have a story for you that came out of this church, one of my favorite stories ever. I've told it a couple times before. I'll tell, this is one of those stories that you get sick of like your pastor telling. So I'm, I'm not gonna apologize for it. It's the, one of my favorite moments. So on Easter Sunday, 2021, a guy brought his girlfriend to church here at Park Hill. It was Sunday was out on the promenade where Easter outdoors is beautiful. The guy, the boyfriend, uh, was a Christian and a missionary kid. And the woman's not a Christian at all, like cradle Catholic, now atheist. And, and that Easter, I gave a sermon on Jesus' physical resurrection and our future resurrection and, uh, you know, light stuff. And so this, this guy and his girlfriend walk up to me and, and walk up to Sandy, both of us. The two of them came to the two of us. And the girl, the woman, girlfriend, leads the conversation. She's like, okay, I am not on board with this. That's what she wanted to say first. She just wanted to make sure I know. She's dissenting. I'm not on board with this, but I do have questions. Can we all do coffee? And I'm like, are you kidding? That's amazing. I'm in. All, absolutely. No, I'm like, too busy. No, just kidding. <laughs> of course. That's amazing. That's what I live for. So at coffee, at coffee, she tells first meeting, she set the parameters. She's like, okay, first off, first off, remember, I'm not on board. Um, especially, I'm not on board with the sci-fi parts of Christianity, she said. And I'm like, what's the sci-fi parts? That's awesome. I like, and, and, she, and she's like, you know, how Jesus comes back from the dead and how lots of other dead people are going to rise in a future remade world when Jesus comes back. And I'm like, oh, yeah, that part. That's important, that part. And... <laughs> I'm like, but please continue. I get it. Continue. And she's like, so no sci-fi, but I can't deny God in my boyfriend. 
Like, I can't deny, I can't, I can't tell him he's a liar. When, he, when I ask him, how come you're so amazing? You're like, no one I've ever met. And he says, the king is living in me. I, I don't want to call him a liar because he's so great. So, um, and I kind of have no explanation for the way he is. And so, here I am, pastors. Help me process. Is this king, how is King Jesus like a real thing? Because that's very problematic for me. And, uh, and that began a series of coffee double dates where we just walked her through the reality of Jesus, the very basic, you know, uh, historical, historical realities around the resurrection and the, the empty tomb and all those sightings that are, that are like historically verified as really plausible secular arguments for something like a resurrection. And so, she, so we walked, th- walked her through those things. And eventually, she's very honest, like deadly honest person, which is awesome. And she came to this point where she said, okay... I can no longer like, deny, you've answered all the problems. I can't deny the reality of Jesus. So unfortunately, I need to be baptized. <laughs> and so, <laughs> because this is real. He's at work in my boyfriend's life. These are all things that, I mean, there's no reason not to submit to this thing. Um, so the next baptism Sunday, she came forward for baptism and I asked her, how you feeling? And, and her response, terrified. And I was like, why? Tell me more. Terrified. Thank you for sharing that. Why are you terrified? And she's like, getting baptized, I, like identifying with the Jesus tribe, like, like doing what Jesus says always terrifies me because I'm a person of deep values. And it's hitting me, she's saying. It's hitting me. As I follow Jesus, Jesus' values are probably going to confront some of mine. And I'm terrified because I don't know what those are going to be. So by agreeing to be baptized, I'm agreeing to submit before I know what they are, and that terrifies me. And, she said, and then she said the words that gave me chills. She's like, it feels like I'm losing myself. So it's chills, because that's what Jesus said salvation feels like, right? And I said, I know what you're experiencing right now. This is, you're experiencing salvation right now. Um, that's what salvation feels like. And she was baptized, and it was... An incredible moment I'll never forget. You guys, it feels like losing yourself to fully trust Jesus as king. So that fear is part of the deal. Or in the king's own words, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves. Whoever wants to save their own life for themselves will lose it. And whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. The king comes where he's wanted. And maybe your problem here isn't trusting. Maybe you're like, I trust Jesus. I'm just hurting. I'm suffering. And this is the most comforting news right now uh, because even as you suffer, Paul's responding, I rejoice with you. I'm suffering with you. Christ, we're suffering with Christ. Through our faithful suffering, there is an intimate partnership with Jesus that's happening. He's building his church, he's building your maturity, and he's witnessing himself to the world. So I rejoice, rejoice with me, is the invitation. So however this is challenging you, whether you're doubting that you can trust Jesus or you're just hopeless and suffering, however this is coming to you, I want to finish by just reading the rest of Paul in this text. He comes to you as a father, a good father, and he says it like this, Christ is the one we proclaim admonishing and teaching everyone with all wisdom so that we may present everyone fully mature in Christ. 
To this end, I strenuously contend with all the energy Christ so powerfully works in me. From a prison cell, I want you to know how hard I'm contending for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not met me personally. My goal from my suffering, my goal is that they may be encouraged. You see, who's he talking about? Right before verse 2, for, for you, Colossae, for Laodicea, and for all who have not met me personally in the rest of the church. You guys, that's you. I'm contending for all who will read this. My goal is that they may be encouraged in heart, united in love, so that they may have the full riches of complete understanding in order that they may know the mystery of God, namely Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I tell you this, so that no one may deceive you by fine-sounding arguments. You guys, there's plenty of fine-sounding arguments. You know why they sound fine? Because they cater to our desires. Fine-sounding arguments cater to our felt needs, to our momentary attractions and the things that tempt us. Fine-sounding arguments work because they cater to our surface-level desires that can't even touch our deepest desire for God. So I'm telling you this so no one may deceive you by fine-sounding arguments. For though I'm absent from you in body, I'm present with you in spirit and delight to see how disciplined you are and how firm your faith in Christ is. The words of a father who lives in prayer for you, his children, drenched in compassion, that we deny ourselves, take up our cross, follow Jesus. So church family, that, that king, the God-man, Jesus, he knows how to be human way more than us. And so we submit to him to find the life that's truly worth living that he offers. And he's here. Christ in you. He's here. And we're going to come to the table where he's present, uniquely saying, come, invite me again to be king of you. He invites you to his table where he invites you to then invite him. Let's keep inviting each other to this thing. Jesus is like, I know you're faithless. I'm faithful. I got enough for both of us. Do you, do you trust me that my life is what you truly long for? Even in your moments of temptation. That underneath those temptations, there's a deeper longing that is actually for God. Will you let me awaken that today at the table? Will you let me breathe on that with my spirit? And when we say yes, we take the bread and cup and Jesus comes in and does what he does. He animates us with his spirit. And that's part of the prayer time I want to invite you all into now. The temptation, I want to say this because I think it's a, a teaching moment uh, for prayer. The temptation when we have prayer times is to, is to try to get like human counsel. You know? Like, you feel like you come forward for prayer and you need to, like, verbalize a reason. Like, you know, I'm just coming, I'm just having this hard time and I just really feel like I need to. And, and I would encourage you today to step into a new kind of trust where you don't have to explain yourself at all. You putting feet to your desire for God just is all you need. Come forward for prayer and then just 
Maybe, maybe meet eye contact with someone who's going to pray for you and just smile, and, they, and they'll be like, you don't need to say anything. And they'll just say, Holy Spirit, come over this precious person, and they'll just pray the love of the Father over you and see what happens. You don't need to explain why you're coming for prayer. Just come. And come with this question kind of looming in a good way. Looming's the very negative word, but you know what I mean. Sit, sitting, sitting in this question. What area of my life remains unsurrendered to the king who wants to fully live in and through me? And know that you're not coming to receive judgment. You're not coming for prayer to receive judgment. You're coming to receive Christ. You're coming to receive Christ who's in you. And he wants to remind you of the hope of concrete glory that gives meaning even in the midst of meaningless suffering. So can we stand together and step into a time of prayer and trust? We're going to sing a song that I love. And uh, gosh, Christ is my foundation. Can't think of a better song to sing at this point. And so believing that, come forward. Receive prayer. And, and you don't have to remember. Just receive just receive. We'll come to the table in a bit, but right now let's just receive prayer.